Before we start, we want to say thank you to our listeners for coming along with us all the way to this special 100th episode. In general, we really do like to hear from you. So please get in touch with us and let us know what kind of topics you want us to cover for the next 100 eps. You can find us on Telegram, on Twitter, on YouTube, or you can email us. If you want to support the podcast, you can donate to the show either on Patreon, Gitcoin, or directly. All of this info is in the show notes. And if you're new to the Zero Knowledge Podcast, then I want to say welcome. Please do subscribe where you get your podcasts. We share new episodes every week, and we would love to have you join us. So thanks again for coming along with us on this journey. For the last two years, we've been learning about blockchain tech, the decentralized web, and the awesome emerging field of zero-knowledge proof systems. It's been a wild ride, and at the same time, feels like it's just getting started. So I would say stay tuned. So now on to our interview with Dan Bonet. Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. All right, so I'm here with Anna and Dan Bonet. And this is a very special episode because it's our 100th episode. And I can't imagine a better person to have our 100th episode with because uh, we're sitting with someone ha who has invented much of what we're talking about and uh, much of what the entire blockchain space is built on. So I think this is great. To many of our listeners, you're someone who doesn't really need an introduction, uh, but perhaps it's best to lay some background work here. Uh, so Dan... Who are you? How long have you been working in crypto and, and whatever related fields? So first, hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here and congratulations on 100 episodes. I'm uh, uh, really, really happy to be here. Um, so let's see. So uh, so for background, so I'm, I've been working in cryptography now for uh, for a long time. I'm um, almost embarrassed to say it's almost, uh, what is it, 20, over 25 years or so. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful area. I really, really enjoy it. I've kind of, I got hooked on uh, cryptography already when I was in high school. It was kind of clear to me, this is what I want to do with my life. Oh, cool. it's, a, it's a beautiful combination of very deep mathematics uh, and real world problems. And people really care. So I'm a professor here at Stanford. I, I primarily focus on uh, cryptography, computer security, and in the last five years or so on blockchains. Again, blockchains are like such an exciting area for a cryptographer that uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I guess that's what we'll explore in the coming hour. You say that like cryptography was always this exciting field, but early on, what was the exciting parts? And was it was it different parts? Do you feel like there's more and more industry involvement as time has passed? I'm just sort of trying to picture like what it was like then and what it's like now. Oh, absolutely. It's changed a lot over the years. So I, I guess when I uh, started out, the field was mostly, well, the, the field was all, all, was kind of divided into two parts. There were the people who were trying to build secure systems and using cryptography, cryptography for that. Um, and there was a lot of kind of ad hoc experiments going on at the time. Uh, and then there was the theoretical community who was kind of laying the groundworks for uh, what is a secure system. It turns out even just defining what is secure encryption, that actually turned out to be quite a difficult thing. And surprisingly, even for something as simple as symmetric encryption, right? So Alice and Bob have a shared key. Alice wants to send a message to Bob. 
How does she do that? Even for something as simple as symmetric encryption, it's only in the year 2000 that we had our correct definition for what is the right, the right thing to do there. What is it that we're actually trying to achieve? And wow. for your listeners, uh, I hope everybody knows this. This is called, this is called authenticated encryption, which is kind of the, the correct way to, uh, to implement symmetric encryption today. Um, so that was kind of being developed by, the, by more of the uh, theory community. And what happened over the years, which I thought was really exciting, is this really thick bridge emerged between theory and practice, primarily because the ad hoc experiments that were kind of developed over the years, you know, in many ways turned out to be let me just say, kind of more exciting than we want them to be. You know, so excitement is when uh, things break. It's very exciting. And, you know, we have a version, a crypto library now called Boring TLS, which the whole point there is to say cryptography is supposed to be boring. You implement it, it, it just works, it never breaks, and you never hear about it again. Uh, and in the old days, in some sense, cryptography was exciting, which is kind of experimental cryptography. I mean, it was a little too, um, had a a little too many attacks on it. And so uh, there was a very thick bridge that was uh, constructed between the theory community and the applied community. And um, now, for example, it's pretty much accepted that authenticated encryption is the only way you should be implementing symmetric symmetric encryption. Uh, There are very robust models for um, uh, key exchange. Uh, And in fact, the development of uh, the very recent development of TLS 1.3 uh, I'm sure all your audience has heard about this. This is a huge development in the world of uh, security and cryptography. Um, that is an amazing success in that that whole protocol was designed using um, uh, you know, rigorous definitions and formal uh, verifications of all the protocol steps. And it's a major, major advance. So TLS 1.3 is a much better protocol than the TLS versions that came before it, uh, specifically, especially uh, thanks to the stick bridge between the theory and the experimental community. Given this long uh, history, you know, at what point did you start seeing like blockchain as being a part of cryptography, and and what what was your entry point into blockchain tech? Oh yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so. You know, blockchain is not just about cryptography. Blockchain is kind of a combination of multiple areas. One of the things that's uh, so fascinating to me is that it really is such an interdisciplinary uh, field of research, or more than research, you know, um, I guess, interdisciplinary field. So obviously it involves cryptography, but it's not just cryptography. It's also distributed systems, economics, uh, legal aspects, um, and so on. Um, so to me, I, I guess, uh, boy, I, I don't remember the exact date, but I guess we um, we uh, kind of, um, well, I guess we, we, we taught our first course on blockchains back in 2015, I believe. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was, that was, that was kind of a while, a while ago. And we have been teaching this course now annually. So I think right now we're teaching it for the fourth time. But I have to say it's a, one of the hardest courses I teach. And the reason is, it's almost the exact opposite of teaching uh, calculus, right? So when you teach calculus, well, I don't teach calculus, but the, if, you, if, you, if you teach calculus, that's, um, that the material doesn't change, right? Yeah. That, that's material that was invented when, uh, 200 years ago, and that's basically what you teach. And blockchains, literally, literally every year that we teach the course, it's a brand new course. Wow. Yeah, it's remarkable that we have to kind of redo, uh, you know, 75% of the course every year. And I'd love to talk a little bit more once we dive into education, I'd love to talk about the changes we made uh, we made this year. Uh, but the, so the attendance attendance in the course is actually fairly robust. It's like over 100 students every time, although it does fluctuate. So it's kind of interesting that uh, I'd say 
I'd say that um, you know enrollments kind of fluctuates with the price of Bitcoin. <laughs> if we I've... see if we see over the summer Bitcoin goes up, attendance goes up. If we see over the summer the Bitcoin goes down, attendance goes down. Yeah. I was just thinking it must have been very. There must have been a, a huge wait list in 2017, late 2017. Oh my god! Yeah, that, that then we had then we had over 150 students. Yeah, that wow. was actually that was actually quite a large course. Do you limit it? Actually, no, 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 oh. no, 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 no. Our oh, courses, none of our courses are limited. Oh, cool. We have courses that. No, we have very, very large courses. And then you also have Coursera. You have an online course. Oh, yeah, yeah. So actually, maybe it's worth, maybe it's worth talking about, uh, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about education, um, particularly cryptography education. So maybe I can talk a little bit about um, what, what are resources that people can kind of uh, uh, use. Uh, in, a bit, in addition to the blockchain course, we also have courses that focus specifically on cryptography and computer security. So our cryptography course basically is just uh, an introduction to, to, to cryptography. So actually, we have courses at many different levels um, um, that, that I teach. So at the freshman level, this, these are students who are just coming in, starting, these are like 19-year-old students just starting in, and I try to get them excited about computer security and cryptography. So we have like a course, it's called 10 Ideas in Computer Security. It's half about security, half about cryptography. Uh, we have an, uh, our introductory course to cryptography, and then we have our graduate course um, in, in crypto. Uh, although I got to tell you, there, I have to tell you this funny story that happened to me a while ago. So I, I get this call from a reporter, and she's telling me that she's writing a, a story about uh, crypto education. So I say, great, that's what I do. So let's talk about it. And then she says, well, so how long have you been teaching crypto? So I say, well, I've been teaching crypto for uh, over 22 years. And then the reporter is a little uh, is a little puzzled. Uh, yeah. So then, uh, so, so then she asks, uh, Free Satoshi. But, but wait a minute. Before <laughs> before two thousand nine, there was nothing to teach. What did you teach before two thousand nine? Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, that was uh, I was a little shocked. Yes. So then I had to kind of stop and say, wait a minute, cryptography. This is like an area that's like over, over two thousand years old. You know, the ancient Babylonians were already encrypting things. Yeah. So it was not invented in two thousand nine. There was mm-hmm. a lot a lot to teach beforehand, and so. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So, so, so. So this uh, goes back to the crypto is means cryptography, not cryptocurrency. Ah, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But both. actually, the word crypto, honestly, it's kind of now become has two different meanings, right? Yeah. I mean, it does mean cryptography to some people, and it does mean cryptocurrencies to some to some other people. Does that bother you? There's does other it, people we've interviewed who are really bothered by. Are this, really bothered but... by that? Um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of this is applications of cryptography. So. I don't. I don't mean to be. You know. I. I uh, what is it? Uh, there are enough battles to fight out there. I don't need to be fighting windmills. <laughs> so if people want to use crypto for uh, cryptography and cryptocurrencies, fine. Uh, I think it's better, of course, if crypto continues to mean cryptography because mm-hmm. that's that's the original uh, uh, use of the term. But uh, if people are happy in expanding what what it means, fine. Do you also? I mean, do you consider what you're working on also cryptology? I heard that there was a distinction there. So cryptography, meaning the ability to encrypt, and cryptology, encrypt and attack. Yeah. So I don't. I don't like those distinctions. So so there's uh, cryptography, which is sort of encryption and cryptanalysis, which is uh, the attack attacking crypto systems, and then and then cryptology is sort of the combination of cryptography and cryptanalysis. You know, those. I think those distinctions are somewhat artificial in that um, the way we work is, you know, we try to construct a system and then we try to prove that it's secure. If we fail to prove that it's secure, we try to attack it. If we fail to attack it, we go back to try to prove that it's secure and we bounce back and forth and sometimes modifying the system as we go along 
And so really to design, you can't design a crypto system without also knowing how to attack it. Fair enough. So the distinction between the two fields is, is um, not that meaningful. Uh, you know, a cryptographer needs to do, needs to do both. Um, so yeah, I, I want to jump back into this point on education because I would want to make uh, a, a part of this podcast about education, actually. I think it's a fascinating topic, but I would want to take a step back from where you, where you were just talking and ask, um, what do you think the current state of both cryptography and blockchain education is today? Like cryptography education is obviously widespread and exists in all universities across the world blockchain education not at all like i think stanford is in the forefront here oh yeah for sure um right so like you said cryptography education is actually fairly fairly widespread um maybe, maybe I, I i should mention that um uh in, in fact uh, you know we have even this uh, massive open online course this is what's called a mooc on cryptography that uh, in fact, a lot of universities adapt adapted the material for the MOOC for their own local uh, courses, which is everybody for as the material is public. Everybody's welcome to uh, learn from the course and also use it to design their own courses. Um, so that's on the on the uh, 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 cryptography side. On the blockchain side, there is still a lot of uh, there. There aren't that many, like you said, there aren't that many universities that offer courses. And I think that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, I think it's uh, such an exciting area to teach that um, I would really encourage many, many more professors to actually offer those courses at, the, at their universities. Um, one thing I would say is uh, education has kind of changed a little bit over, over the uh, past couple of years in that, uh, first of all, all of our materials are available online. So anyone who wants to design a blockchain course, they're very welcome to come to our uh, to look at what we teach, They're, they can steal all the materials. They can steal all our projects, our exams, our our, our lecture notes, and uh, are very welcome to just use it to design uh, local courses at their universities. And I would say even uh, uh, everything that we do is recorded and made available. So if anybody, if a student wants to actually take a Stanford course on blockchains or on on cryptography. Go ahead. You can just sign up remotely, uh, and we have students from all over the world who take our courses on. So everything is is recorded and available for folks to uh, to attend. Um, and so, why do I find this? Uh, why do I find blockchain so much fun to teach? Like I said, it's a hard course to teach. It's a hard course to teach because it changes uh, from year to year. But what it does? Let's let's talk a little bit about what goes into a blockchain course. So I, I view it as sort of a mix of. Uh, a distributed systems class plus a cryptography cryptography class. So I kind of like to think of blockchains as uh, a system that has four layers. Yeah, so the bottom layer is what I call the consensus layer. This is basically how do we uh, take um, a sequence of transactions from the public or a set of transactions from the public and make it into an ordered sequence that all the participants in the systems agree on. That's what the consensus layer does. That, that's, that's, what, that's, what layer, that's what layer one. The second layer, unfortunately, I have to call it layer 1.5, which you'll see why in a second. So that's the second layer. It's layer 1.5 is uh, what I call the compute layer. Sometimes this is called a blockchain computer. So here in layer 1.5, we, we can kind of assume that transactions are, have already been uh, uh, ordered sequentially. And now we can build a computing environment on top of these transactions. So, you know, Bitcoin has Bitcoin script as the computing layer. Ethereum has the EVM as the computing layer. You know, many other blockchains have their own computing layer. So that's kind of, I, I kind of think of this as kind of the equivalent of an operating system for a blockchain. We 
I kind of like the name blockchain computer. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what I tend to use. Layer two is basically the applications that are built on top of the blockchain computer, right? So these are all the stable coins and lending platforms and, and all the DeFi that's been developed out there. And then layer uh, three is basically all the user-facing applications. So these would be like wallets and custody services uh, and things like that, right? So I kind of think of these as these four layers. And you notice that it has many, it's, 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 it spans many areas of computer science and beyond. So the consensus layer, of course, are distributed systems. The application layer has, a, the compute and application layer has a lot of cryptography that's, uh, that's built into it, including, by the way, zero knowledge and snarks, which is, I guess, uh, where we're, what we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, and then, the, you know, the, obviously the, the user-facing layer that has a lot of legal and business uh, aspects associated with it. So in fact, every year, obviously I'm not a lawyer, so every year I ask a lawyer to come in and talk about the regulatory environment uh, for blockchains. So uh, just a shout out, I guess this year we have the chief counsel of Anchorage coming to speak at our, at our class about the regulatory environment. And of course, the regulatory environment, that's like a fascinating area in its own right, especially what's happening in the world today, you know, with Libra and now the Fed saying that they're going to get into cryptocurrencies. Um, so that, that's kind of a whole, that's like a whole class on its own. Which, by the way, I should say, I kind of my class is a com- designed for a computer scientist. So we focus on a how the different layers work, but the students actually go ahead and build decentralized applications, all the way from writing Solidity contract, including the Web three interface and so on. So all the way to the user facing parts of it. So, but it's designed for a computer scientist. There are also um, parallel courses being taught in the law, law school and in the business school that focus on completely different aspects of blockchain. Yeah. So if uh, your listeners happen to be uh, faculty at other universities, this is an amazing opportunity for like interdisciplinary collaboration, mm-hmm. right? Kind of creating a, a sequence of courses uh, across the university is, is really, really rewarding. And, you know, we all get exposed to uh, a set of topics that we're not really, uh, that's kind of a little bit outside of our daily week. Is there any other, is there any other topic in cryptography where you've seen something similar, where you've actually seen course, like, I, I realize that these are related courses and they don't need to be taken in tandem, but they, it helps to know something about law and it helps to know something maybe on the business side. So, or the, or the token economic side, when it comes to other cryptographic concepts, have you seen anything like that? Well, you know, that's the beauty of computer security. A lot of computer security is interdisciplinary, right? So computer security obviously has a huge uh, legal aspect around it, right? Mm-hmm. So in fact, we one of the courses we teach is, uh, is uh, legal aspects of computer security. It's computer security for lawyers, yeah? Uh, basically, oh, wow. how the legal system, how the U.S. legal system interacts with the technical computer security world. Uh, so that's kind of a, so that you see that a lot in in general computer security. But computer security, you know, so it has obviously legal ramifications. There's a lot of psychology that goes into computer security. How do you get people to do things that harm their computing environment? So no, so a lot. This look, this is why I love this area. A yeah. lot of it is is really goes goes beyond computer science to other other uh, parts of um, you know of academia that uh, psychology economics and so on so Ooh. it's not unique to blockchains but blockchains really 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 amplify it what what are those categories so for blockchain we've sort of mentioned there's computer science there's legal the business school business and economics and economics yeah okay yeah so, so right so uh, those are kind of the, the major parts is psychology is not included yet yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, I'm sure that in time psychology will be will be uh, included as well. I guess there's a, there's a lot of uh, you know in computer security there are um, uh, the types of attacks that we call social engineering attacks, where where I try to kind of an attacker would 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 try to make a user harm 
their computer mm. by calling them up and that's called social engineering and convincing them to do things that they shouldn't like telling your password right you shouldn't but yeah i can be, attackers can convince you to do it um so uh, I don't know that we're seeing as much of it in the blockchain, so we see much of it, in, much more of it in computer security. But I'm sure, I'm sure in the long run, psychology, psychology it rules everywhere, right? So I'm sure in the long run, we'll see more interactions. When you're teaching these students, like, do you feel like there's some students who are just so good on the engineering side, but maybe less talented on the theoretic side, on the math side? Are you trying to find students who have this perfect balance? Like, what are you kind of, what are you looking for when you're, when you're teaching these people? Oh, what a great question. Yeah. So even though, you know, our, our students are amazing. I mean, it's just, I, I kind of always impressed with what they're, what they're able to do. Obviously, there are some students who are more interested in coding and engineering, and there are some students who are more interested in, in um, doing proofs and focusing on the math. Um, this is why cryptography is such a wonderful area. It literally brings the two things together, right? So, well, you know, if you're going to be using cryptography, implementing cryptography, doing research in cryptography, there is nowhere around it. You got to be able to do, uh, understand deep math. You got to be able to do proofs. These days, a crypto system that does not have an associated proof of security is not a crypto system that we pay attention to. Yeah, and so you have to learn how to do proofs. Uh, at the same time, it's an I view crypto our introduction to crypto course. That's an applied course in that um, yes, you have to do proofs, but you also have to write code that implements everything that we learned. So I think it's one of the I can't think of any other course where students literally you know they have to deal with you know group theory and 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 proving that 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 certain things are are correct and at the same time they have to implement and show that what they did uh works i think this is unique i don't i, I don't know that that happens in a lot of different um in a lot of different courses and honestly this is why I what this is what attracted me to the field i love both the system side of things and i love both the mathematics of it um so this is what i do why i do it and this is why i view it as an applied course um so how do we deal with this uh, dichotomy, right? That it it, it kind of takes um, um, you know two the two sides of your brain. Well, I don't know. It, it takes two parts of your brain to uh, to kind of uh, to kind of do this. Well, the truth is that it's uh, it's not that hard, right? I mean, if you um, I, I'm a believer that uh, uh, if if students are excited by a topic. They'll devote energy to understanding it, and then they will understand how to do both math and imp implementation at the same time. Yeah. So the goal is just to make people, you know, excited about the topic and understand that this is something that they re need in the real world. Right. When they graduate, these kids are going to be the ones building the computer systems that are we are going to be using in the future. Totally. It is absolutely guaranteed that they are going to rely on crypto. They're going to need cryptography no matter where they go, even if they go into blockchains for sure. But even if they go into building web systems and uh, storage systems and such, they're going to have to use cryptography to protect the information. Yeah, so they're going to have to understand how to use it correctly, they have, and they're going to have to understand how to implement it correctly. And so uh, I think it's, uh, it's kind of easy to motivate students to actually get excited about the area. And also, honestly, it's something that they haven't really seen before. And most of them haven't really seen uh, a lot of this before. The kind of the, the types of proofs that are involved, the types of attacks that are involved. You know, the amazing thing is you, we, I can show them like, you know, here's how RSA signatures work. It looks perfectly reasonable to you. Seems like it makes sense and it should work. And yet if you, if you start thinking about it, you realize that if you implement it with one tiny bug, the whole thing is just completely insecure. Wow. It's just trivial to forge signatures. Yeah, uh, this is like a, this is this is attack called ablation backer attack on RSA signatures, which is a lot of fun to teach because you see this, you literally see this thing works, right? You can sign, you can verify, everything works. It looks like it should be secure, 
And if there's just this one check that you forget to implement, the whole thing falls apart, right? It just shows you how how subtle and um, how difficult it is to get it right. Yeah, and cool. you know, students need to understand that. This is something that sort of actually kind of kept me out of crypto when I was in college because there's like I had worked in engineering for a long time before college as well, and like when you talk to programmers and talking in, in, in engineering, there's this mantra of "Don't roll your own crypto." Everyone says, don't roll your own crypto all the time, everywhere. And I think it's sound advice. Oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to take it a step further. So <laughs> don't roll your own crypto typically refers to don't invent your own crypto, which is absolutely right. You should use standards. You should use the things that uh, uh, the community has vetted. Absolutely right. There's another step to that, which is typically don't even try to implement your own crypto. Yeah, it's, th- that's, the, that's what I take it to. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's one of those things where, you know, if you're at a company and somebody comes to you and says, ooh, I made our crypto library 20% faster. This is great. The, tip- the answer should be, no, you probably made it vulnerable to a timing attack, right? Uh, there's a reason why these things are implemented the way they are. Yeah. Yeah? And so even when like implementing crypto correctly is counterintuitive. Uh, and uh, typically you should be using standard libraries that a lot of people have vetted, looked at and tried to break and couldn't. And that's what's uh, that's what should get uh, should actually get deployed. But how do you then balance that with getting people into the field if you're always telling everyone to not do anything in the field? Well, I mean, no, that's a that's a that's a very fair question. But the 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 the, the fact is that to know how to use a library correctly, you have to understand what the primitives are and how they're supposed to be used. The typical typical example is. Um, um, actually, this is something that just came out in iOS 13, right? So Apple has this, uh, uh, what is it called? The crypto object that's uh, supposed to be used by applications to encrypt. Um, and they're, they're, before iOS 13, their interface was fairly complex. Yeah, you have to specify the initialization vector, the IV. You have to specify the mode of operation for your, for your encryption scheme. And most developers just didn't know what to write there. So they just ended up Googling and went to uh, Stack Overflow, found some sample code, and just pasted that into their, into their application. And it turned out that sample code was just incorrect. Yeah, it told them to use ECB mode for encryption and to set the IV to null, and that, that, that's, just, that's just incorrect. So unless you understand what the parameters are, it's very likely you're going to use the library incorrectly. Which, by the way, is kind of interesting. This also goes to API design, <laughs> which is in, in crypto, one of the, um, that's also been my mantra, in that we should keep our a- APIs boring as well, right? It should be like literally encrypt key and message. It shouldn't be, uh, the API should, the basic API should not have all these bells and whistles where you can specify the mode and the IV and so on and so forth, right? Um, so one of the things that happened in iOS 13 is Apple greatly simplified the 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 crypto API. So now it's a lot harder to get it wrong. Yeah, so um, we definitely should see more of this. But my point is, um, no matter what library you're using, you need to understand what the primitives do so that you can use the library correctly. Yeah. Moving on to zero-knowledge stuff, which we've already touched on a little bit. Um, you know, I think zero-knowledge crypto has become a really hot topic over the past year two years maybe there's also been a ton of development happening recently also in your own work and what your group is doing how does zero knowledge fit into the field of cryptography and um why are why does zero knowledge tech seem so important especially to blockchains 
Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited about all the developments that are happening in, in, in zero knowledge. So by the way, one, one thing that I, I promised to come back to earlier, so let me do that now, is one of the new things we're doing in our blockchain course this year is I just believe because snarks have become such a vital component of blockchains that we're now developing, if, if, devoting like five, uh, three, three weeks of the course just to explaining how snarks work Amazing. and how to use them in blockchains. Yeah, so we've made space. We've had to kind of compress other things specifically to make much more room for snarks. And by the way, we're going to make all that content available on the internet for free. So if anybody wants to awesome. learn about snarks, uh, come back in uh, in a few weeks, and uh, all this all this information will be available uh, on the web. Will this will this snarks course be specifically for computer science yes, students? Yes, yes, okay, absolutely. Because I've always understood you can teach snarks for computer science. You can teach snarks for cryptography. You can. I I tend to teach computer scientists uh, for sure. For sure, there's room to do a blockchain class for non computer scientists. Actually, you're making me think that this is maybe a good idea for me to do in the future. Um, so, but that right now the course is in, designed for computer scientists. Got so it. the plan is uh, we're going to dive exactly into uh, how snarks work. And by the way, this has become such a, a fast-moving area. And there's so many new ideas coming up that we could actually teach a whole course just on snarks. But this here, we're just going to focus on kind of the main uh, the main techniques. So why why do I think that snarks are so so important for blockchains? Uh, well, there there are kind of uh, two killer apps that make them really important. So the first one is a blockchain, uh, all the data on the blockchain is public, mm -hmm. yeah? Uh, if it's a public blockchain, you know, the whole world sees it, but even if it's not a public blockchain, you know, the, the participants in the, in the network see all the data on the blockchain. Often that means that um, businesses cannot use it, totally. right? So you cannot, you cannot have your private confidential business data stored in a public blockchain. The typical example I like to give is if, um, you know, Ford wants to pay their tire suppliers using a cryptocurrency and how much they pay uh, is written on the blockchain, that, is, that just means that Ford can't use it. Because anyone who they pay could then see what else they've paid in general oh, and what sure. they're going to be paying in the future to other suppliers or to for other... Sure. Or in fact, all of Ford's competitors will see exactly, I'm just speaking on Ford at random, yeah. <laughs> uh, will see exactly how much Ford is paying for their tires, totally. right? Which is not something that uh, people want to make public. But at the same time, this transparency, this is a topic, by the way, that I find super fascinating, this balance of transparency and privacy. But transparency is a good thing as well. Like the fact that you can see this ledger is actually the benefit of a blockchain. I'm so happy you said that. <laughs> I'm so happy you said that. So the properties of a ledger is, A, you have uh, public verifiability, and transparency, right? Public verifiability. Everybody can tell all, yeah. the, all the transactions are correct. At the same time, public verifiability and transparency make it so that businesses simply can't use it. The other example is if a business wants to pay its employer, employees in a, in a cryptocurrency, their salaries would all be uh, public to the world, totally. which and, is not workable. And even like what they do after with those exactly. tokens could exactly. somehow be traced. By the way, I was always thinking there's a kind of an interesting sci-fi novel to write, which is how would a society function if literally all transactions <laughs> were public to the whole world? Yeah. What would happen? And I guarantee you the first thing that society will do is it will create human mixed nets, right? So uh, if you want to buy potatoes and I want to buy tomatoes, we'll kind of, I'll buy your tomatoes and you'll buy your, and now you'll buy my potatoes. We'll kind of mix, oh, yeah. mix the coins our, 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 ourselves. Yeah. Because humans just fundamentally don't, there, there's a, there's kind of a need for, for privacy in, in, uh, in our, in our uh, financial transactions. I almost feel like with the advent of social media, there was this moment where it was almost like an experiment or a belief that actually we don't need privacy anymore. All of a sudden people felt I can share everything 
with everyone. And I feel that now we're seeing the repercussions the of that. And yeah. basically things that previous generations learned also firsthand, this generation is now learning, oh, wait, sharing everything. There are, there are problems with that. There are un, you know, unforeseen consequences of having all of your information out there. Very interesting. Actually, I think it's an interesting thought experiment. I would really encourage yeah. your, your listeners, just think, what would a society, how would you function in a society where literally all transactions are public? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. Um, but anyhow, so there's this, so there's this conflict, yeah. right? So there's a conflict. There's a need for transparency and verifiability on the one hand, and there's a need for privacy on the other hand. This, is, this type of conflict is exactly the conflict, the type of conflict that cryptography can help resolve. Yeah. And the tool to do it is zero knowledge and snarks. Yeah. And this is why it's such an important tool. So what it allows you to do is effectively people can post commitments to the blockchain rather than uh, posting the data in the clear. And then if they want to prove that uh, transactions are valid, they just attach a zero knowledge proof to say, yes, this transaction is valid. And anyone can check the zero knowledge proof, convince themselves that the committed data actually corresponds to a valid transaction without learning what the committed data is. Yeah. And the same thing for transparency. Um, you know, if you want to prove that, uh, uh, you know, you followed certain rules, you can just attach a zero knowledge proof to your, not just to your, all your transactions. And by the way, this is not just payment transactions. This could apply to dApps as well. You can just prove that you're following the protocol uh, and do that all in zero knowledge. So SNARKs, I, I believe they are such an important tool because they help resolve this fundamental conflict in blockchains. They help us um, move from a totally public blockchain to a private blockchain while preserving all the properties of transparency and, ver and public verifiability. So definitely zero knowledge proofs can provide privacy for transactions, but it goes much beyond that in that they can pro provide also privacy for dApps, right? Uh, so that whenever you post data to a dApp, you don't have to actually reveal what the data is. You can post commitments and just prove that uh, the dApp um, uh, you know, processed that commit that data correctly. So there's a there's a lot of potential. It's not just about privacy. It's about uh, I would say it more generally. It's about resolving the conflict between public verifiability and privacy. Mm. That's what that's what they do. So that's one thing. That's so that's that's a huge huge uh, uh, deal on its own, and that's why I think snarks are so important. But snarks actually let you go. Th those are by the way zk snarks, mm -hmm. the ones that are zero knowledge. Snarks by themselves don't have to be zero knowledge. And the other, so that's that's the other aspect that they that they provide, which is scalability, right? So there are beautiful projects like uh, Rollup, and I guess you already covered Coda in a in a previous uh, session. Totally. Um, but I don't know if you talked about Rollup in a in a previous session. Well, just recently we had an episode with Georgios Tarun and James Presswich, and there we talked, we touched on Rollups. But I'd actually like to do an episode just outlining the different kinds of Rollup. Yeah, oh, we, right. we've already. Yeah, we've also talked to Matter Labs, who's doing a version of Rollup. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. We're working with them too. Yeah. So, so uh, Rollup is uh, maybe I could just summarize it quickly. So, Rollup is a way to uh, scale up the blockchain, where instead of sending transactions to directly to the blockchain, you send transactions to the Rollup server. The Rollup server aggregates thousands of transactions, verifies that they're all correct, and then posts that up to the blockchain. And I guess you mentioned there are now multiple types of Rollup services. Uh, so there's optimistic rollup where where uh, security is enforced by staking, and then there's a zero knowledge roll. Actually, not the zero knowledge, the snark rollup, uh, where security is maintained by crypto. So I want to focus on the snark version of rollup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, the idea is that uh, these thousands of transactions are submitted to the rollup server. The rollup server will verify all the signatures, will verify the, that the transactions are valid 
relative to current account balances, and then just post a, a proof, a short proof that those um, transactions are all valid. And all the contract on the blockchain needs to do is just verify this one simple short proof, and you verify thousands of transactions at once. Yeah, so this is pretty cool. This is really, really cool. Mm. Uh, very beautiful application of, of, of SNARKs. Uh, and actually, it takes us into one something that we've been working on. So um, right now, they are limited to, because of the time to produce these proofs, they are somewhat limited in the number of transactions that you can handle per block. So one of the things that, uh, that we're working on, this is uh, with uh, two of my students, Riyad Wabi and Alex uh, Ozdemir, um, they are, we are working on basically improving the, the uh, proof generation time so that we can dramatically scale up the number of transactions per block. Yeah, so we can, we, we can get, and already the, uh, our system shows that you can go up by an order of magnitude uh, beyond what's available today. Yeah, so same proof generation time, just handling, you know, an order of magnitude more transactions per block. Um, so, yeah, that's, a, again, this is like an amazing application of SNARKs in that uh, you kind of outsource the job of verifying transactions away from the expensive blockchain into an offline service, and the service can then prove to the blockchain that things were done correctly. A thing that really scares me about zero knowledge tech, actually, is going back to what you were talking about before with crypto is supposed to be boring. It's not supposed to be exciting. <laughs> and we're talking about snarks, which have been around for a while and, you know, kind of battle tested on Zcash and other things. But then like this year, we've had Sonics and then we had Halo and then now we have Supersonics and it's just like project after project and it's moving so quickly. How do you actually ensure that that these things are correct, that they're reviewed, battle tested, that you know it's actually ready for adoption into a critical system? You know, so the state of snarks today is um, not exactly where we want to be. Yeah, so there are uh, like five or six different directions for building snarks. Um, maybe just to mention them, there's like MPC in the head, there's like GKR-like systems, there's the uh, GGPR methods, Starks, Bulletproofs, there's like different, I kind of think of them as uh, like different trains for building for building snarks. Yeah. Um, and each one follows a very different technique. And the the problem that we're having is each one is good in its own way. Yeah. So just to give an example, bulletproofs, for example, gives uh, the shortest uh, proofs without trusted setup. Um, you know, uh, 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 the GGPR methods give the shortest proofs with trusted setup, right? So if you don't like trusted setup, you have to use bulletproofs. If you if you're okay with trusted setup, you can use the GGPR methods um, or growth sixteen methods. Uh, and so, like every and, and and the same is true for uh, for the other methods, right? Some of them have better prover time. Some of them have better verifier time. So, like every method kind of shines in its own dimension. What we would love to have. Yeah, and I hope we'll get there. What we would love to have is like, you know, one snark to rule them all. Mm. Yeah, just like in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we'd love to have one snark that's like better, that's like best in all dimensions. That's the one snark that we would teach. That's the one snark that we would implement. And that's the one snark that we would all use and make sure the impl implementation is robust. We're not there yet. Yeah, different snarks are good in different dimensions. And so I hope, you know, this is an open problem. I hope uh, your listeners can help us solve this. Um, and so today, basically, it's a very, very exciting area of research, right? So like every week, there's like new ideas, new results. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, even my students put out Supersonic just last week. Actually, this week, I think. Mm. It's, 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 they're, they're posting the paper. So uh, 
very, very, very exciting area. Uh, I think if we wait just a few years, um, you know, we, I, I think we will get to this one snark to rule them all. And that, that's the one we will, we will focus on. Right now, the one that's being, that's being most widely deployed are the GROS16 methods, right? So this is in the Bellman library, in the CIRCOM, and so on. Uh, which, by the way, in our course, we're also going to be doing like a hands-on Bellman project. So our students are going to have to learn how to write R1CS code so they can actually implement um, uh, uh, SNARKs themselves for Bellman. Uh, nice. So if people are looking for projects to do, just go to our website and do the project yourself, and you can learn how to write R1CS code yourself. Um, and so, uh, um, right. So, so, uh, right now those are the kind of the, the, that implementation, you know, of growth 16 like methods, that's kind of the, the, as you said, uh, battle tested implementation. That's what many of the projects actually use. Um, but in the long run, you know, things could be, could be a little different right now. It's an active area of research. And by the way, that happens like all the time, right? I mean, that happens in, um, in a fast-moving field, you know, there are new ideas coming up, and it takes a while for the implementers and developers to actually go ahead and, and write battle-tested implementations. It's just, it's just early, you know, it's just early in the development of this applied field. Uh, even though, I have to say, one of the fascinating things is zero-knowledge is not a new concept. Zero-knowledge dates back to the, to, the, to the 80s, right? It's just for many years, it was considered this uh, theoretical applica application. Um, there hasn't been uh, like a, it was a little a bit of a struggle to kind of find a real world application for zero knowledge, and then blockchains kind of burst on the scene, and they're like the perfect application, totally. perfect, right? It's just a perfect match, and because it's such a perfect match, all of a sudden everybody's interested in kind of building the best one and making it work in practice. And the minute you have an app, a real world application, that's where kind of the re that's kind of where all these beautiful ideas and people's focus comes up, and that's why we're seeing so much development now. But it's a lot of fun. I mean. That's kind of what makes totally. this exciting, right? What would you What would you say though to a team? Because I've actually met a few like blockchain company teams who are looking to implement zero knowledge proofs, but they don't know where to start. They're kind of like exactly what you're saying with this boom of new um, new concepts coming out. They don't know which one to kind of latch on to. So would you give them the advice to wait? No, 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 no. You don't want to hold up progress just uh, to wait for for you know the community to to to. to, to, to you know, define, define the best uh, snark. Um, what, uh, let's see. So first of all, I should say, come talk to us. You know, we're happy to help. We talk to a lot of projects. Cool. And uh, in fact, a lot of our research is based on problems that projects pose to us. Um, that's, one, that's one option. Uh, the other option is, of course, hire people who can help uh, assess which, which uh, zero-knowledge method is best for you, for your particular project. And if it's... Um, uh, you know, if if you're kind of a black box user of of uh, snarks, well, there are already fairly good implementations that you know they do require trusted setup, that do require um, um, you know uh, prover time is not is not ideal and so on. But there are implementations like Bellman and such that uh, that a lot of projects actually use. Uh, so the implementations are getting more robust, but they're a little bit fa they're falling behind behind the latest developments in the theory of snarks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's going to be a little bit of catch up to do. But you know the the, the other interesting thing is um, you could try to use whatever is available today as in your project, and then if if a new uh, snark gets developed later, essentially you can swap it in if. You know, you're okay with a hard fork to swap it in, uh, but that's that's always another option. 
Is there any fear, I mean, in this, in these new constructions that have come out, is there ever a fear that like there isn't enough peer review, that there isn't, there's so few people that actually know how to gauge this stuff that proper peer review isn't necessarily happening and some narratives or some ideas might be taking hold, which are not completely correct? You know, the, the truth of the matter is uh, these are complex systems to implement, right? And so whenever you're dealing with a complex system, y- you know that there'll be issues down the road, yeah? And so it's, it's quite possible that uh, your project might use uh, a SNARK implementation today and later on it will turn out that uh, there were bugs in the, in the implementation and the SNARK is not as sound as you would hope or maybe it's not as private as you would hope. Um, in fact, we know that this already happened a couple of times uh, in the real world. And so the best thing to do is just design your project project to prepare for that, right? So, right, a snark has two two security uh, properties, right? Soundness and, pri- and, and, and zero knowledge, right? So zero knowledge is the privacy property. And your implementation could end up breaking either one. And in fact, we've seen examples in the real world where in one case, soundness was broken. In the other case, zero knowledge was broken. Yeah. And so the only thing... The only advice I can give there is, well, you know, these are complex systems. And when you design your project, you should just design in a process to handle those kind of bugs. So if there's a soundness, soundness, but a soundness vulnerability is the is the more dangerous one because soundness could actually lead to money being lost or money being created. So that's actually quite uh, quite a dangerous effect. And so you need to prepare for a hard fork to recover from those kind of kind of uh, soundness bugs. The zero knowledge bug is mostly um, affecting people's privacy, which of course could be equally devastating. Uh, and there, what can I say? I mean, you just need to, to to just your project needs to be prepared to handle those kind of those kind of issues. But I can't. It's not exactly um, uh, the snarks are not the ones that should be taking the the uh, brunt of the of the heat here. In that you know, consensus is also extremely complicated to implement correctly in the real world. If you have consensus bugs, you also have issues with money being lost or created. And many projects are prepared to deal with consensus bugs by hard forking and fixing them. So I don't think it's it's fair to say that snarks are especially vulnerable. I think th- this whole ecosystem of blockchains. It's just a complicated, complex system. And whenever you have complex systems, you have to be prepared for, you know, major vulnerabilities that you have to address. But going back to that question of, but like specifically of peer review, though, mm-hmm. is that, I mean, it throughout all of those systems, how, like, how does it work right now? Is it just sort of the traditional academic peer review on some of the academic papers? The reason I'm asking is because there's so much work also coming out of industry, it's not necessarily vetted in the same way, I guess. I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, this is, it's, it's, I know it's a, it's a bit of a, because it's a young area, it's a, it's a bit of a uh, problematic topic to an- question to answer in that um, in the traditional computer security world, you know, there are companies whose whole business model is just to help other companies uh, assess the security of their software, right? So there are lots of companies who will do security reviews for you. Yeah. In the world of uh, blockchains, some of these computer security review companies have also morphed into doing blockchain reviews. Mm-hmm. So they will review your Solidity code and uh, review your consensus protocol. In the area of SNARKs, it's much harder for them to find people to do reviews because it's such a specialized area uh, and there are not that many people uh, who are versed in it. 
It's interesting because here the way that that um, we're talking about peer review is like the audits, basically. It's it's companies auditing rather than sort of that academic. I'm not in academia, but like the way I've understood peer review, where you'd actually send papers out to other academics who would basically say, yes, this follows, you know, what it needs to in order to be considered acceptable research. Without that, um, we are more dependent, I guess, on these auditors and the firms, the security firms. Well, I mean, there are two types of audits, right? Obviously, when a new SNARK system is developed, there is a peer review to make sure that the system itself is correct and robust, that the proofs are, are hold. Otherwise, the, the SNARK would not be published. Uh, so that's like a peer, peer review of the paper. But there's a separate audit, which is once the system gets implemented, you want to audit the code that actually implemented that system that actually implements that system. And then uh, that is something that is much harder to do. I'll tell you, the reason academics and PhD students don't like to do that as much is it's harder to write papers about that, Mm. right? So, you know, publish or perish. I mean, students have to write their PhD dissertations. If they can't, if what they do doesn't lead to a publication, it's not not worth their time to do. And so um, I think it's... uh, and and So... so, um, Security reviews of of crypto code is not something that we should rely on PhD students to do because that's not what they're here for. Mm-hmm. It really should be these uh, professional auditors that do, and they they honestly they just need to build up the expertise to do it. So we've covered a lot throughout this episode on education. Now we've been talking a little bit about peer review and zero knowledge space and where zero knowledge how zero knowledge fits into sort of the general cryptography space. But I want like. Dan, you've been involved in so many blockchain projects, and what I'd love to hear about are any kind of blockchain projects, zero-knowledge projects that you're excited about right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, first, I, sh- I should say I'm full-time at Stanford. So what we do, the way we work is uh, projects come to us with interesting research questions, and then you know we help solve those, uh, those questions. So that's how I love to work. And in fact, many of, our pa- many of the papers that we write are motivated and driven by fascinating questions that the projects come and ask us. And I have to say, this is why I love the blockchain space so much, because there are the, the questions that it raises, that the projects raise, are questions that have never been asked before. And so for us, it's wonderful, wonderful to work on them. So since we've talked about zero knowledge, maybe I can talk a little bit about projects that we're doing that are related to zero knowledge, and then maybe we can kind of veer off to other, other directions. Sounds good. Yeah, so one, one project I wanted to mention that we did uh, recently is a system called uh, Prio. This is a system for privately collecting telemetry data. Uh, so it's it has applications in blockchains, but the main but it's but the main applications is 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 a bit outside. And so let me explain what that means. Actually, yeah, what is telemetry? Oh, you can excellent. start there. Excellent. Sorry. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I'll I'll explain. So you know, in the past, when when a factory made a product like a car or a cell phone or a toothbrush or something, you know, it would roll off the factory floor, and then the manufacturer would never ever hear back from the product, right? So Ford makes a car, they would normally never hear back from the car. That has changed, right? Today, all products are connected, and as a result, they constantly can send data back to the manufacturer. So cars constantly now connect back to for, to the manufacturer and send data back. Uh, you know, so, cell phones obviously connect back to the manufacturer. When you run a browser, it connects back to the browser vendor and sends uh, telemetry data back. Telemetry means basically how is the product being used. Okay. Even your toothbrush, right? If you buy an IoT toothbrush, that's going to send uh, data back to the manufacturer. And the reason uh, the manufacturer wants to collect all this data is so they can make the product better. 
right? So for them, it's actually a treasure trove of, of data that they can use. So you can see, again, there's this problem here that the manufacturers want to collect data on how customers use their product so they can make it better. But at the same time, there's obviously privacy problems here, right? If I if my car sends data back, all of a sudden the manufacturer knows where I am at any 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 given time and how I uh, how exactly I use my car. Um, same thing with cell phones. Same thing with browsers. I don't want my browser reporting which websites I go to to the browser uh, vendor. So that's called the telemetry telemetry data. What? Uh, so again, there's this conflict, right? They would like to collect. Uh, aggregate data of how customers use their product. They don't care how you specifically use the product, mm -hmm. but they want to know how many people drive with their tires underinflated. They don't care if you drive with your tires underinflated. They just want to know what fraction of the population drives with tire under tires underinflated. By the way, I think this is uh, highly relevant in the blockchain space in in the sense that you know when we are building blockchain clients, we want to know how people use those clients. How many people run an Ethereum node? We oh, yeah. have no way sure. of finding that out because we have made the decision early on that we are not going to let the client phone home. We don't want people's data. And so we kind of don't know how people use our software yeah, and how they run fantastic. their clients what, with what configurations, et cetera. So it's really hard to like design a good blockchain client because we, we don't know how people use them. Yep. So you're 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 making the case here. So so you're saying layer four. Layer four is basically the client facing layer, and that actually there's a there's a need for telemetry there uh, there as well. But my point is, uh, all they care about is aggregate data. You don't care who who you um, you don't care who's using who's running a full node. You just care, want to know how many people run a full node and so on. Um, and so that's what the Prio system does. Yeah. So the Prio system is basically a way for companies to collect aggregate information without ever ever learning anything about the underlying data other than what's revealed by the aggregate collection does this go back to that point we were talking about before where there's like the transparency and the privacy so like yes. a certain amount of information is is delivered through but true privacy is still maintained the way i would say it is exactly like exactly right you're right on target in that there's a conflict here between utility and privacy And crypto is one way to resolve that that conflict. There are other ways, by the way. There's something called differential privacy. There are other techniques, mm. but crypto is one way to help resolve that um, that conflict. And so, um, let me in, in just a, a few sentences. Let me explain how the Prio system works, um, and then I should say that. Um, This is actually getting deployed, yeah. So there is like by now, uh, there are companies out there who are deploying who are deploying Prio, and um, I think a lot of your listeners are already listen are already using it. Is is Prio a company, by the way, or no, is no, that no, a no, protocol? No. Prio is a protocol. It's a project that we did here, and um, is available. Everything we do, by the way, is available. Uh, anyone can use it. Our, take our code, run with it. So yeah, all of this is uh, stuff that's available. Cool. Uh, there is an implementation available too. Um, Okay, so so uh, how does it work? Well, effectively, what happens is whoever's create collecting the aggregate data needs to run. Um, it, it relies on two non-cooperating servers. Yeah, so two or more. So effectively, let's let's just stick with two with an example of two. Um, yeah, so you have to keep. Um, uh, yeah, so so the company would have to to partner with someone who basically functions as an auditor and is not going to uh, share information with the company. 
Uh, yeah, so that's a that's a strong assumption to make, but that's what the system needs to scale to uh, to millions of users. And then what happens is uh, every every uh, customer, like if you're talking about a browser, the browser user basically will send encrypted data to uh, the two servers, and once you know the millions of of customers send their data over to these servers, then the aggregate encrypted data can sort of can somehow be combined together so that the aggregate results becomes available in the clear without revealing anything else about the underlying data it's not quite homomorphic encryption it's actually based on a, homomorphic encryption would not scale to the to millions of users this has been the um let, let's say the, our goal was to support hundreds of millions of users and uh, as a result we use an information theoretic mechanism it's actually based on secret sharing and I can tell you that uh, the, pro- the, the difficult problem to solve was, well, if you're not seeing every individual's contribution, how do you know that people are not send- sending you junk data mm-hmm. and, and ruining the aggregation process by doing it? For example, if you're trying to count how many people are, are um, driving with underinflated tires, well, one person who wants to mess with you can send you, uh, can send you instead of saying, sending zero or one, yes, I'm... I have underinflated tires or not, they can send you like a million or minus a million. They can send you values that are way out of bound. Yeah. And so the connection to zero knowledge is what we had to do here was effectively have people send secret shared data, but then provide a zero knowledge proof that the data actually is is within the allowable range, for example. So if a company wants to collect a bunch of traits like this, so that every customer sends encrypted vectors of zeros and ones, and then there's a zero-knowledge proof that proves, yes, all the values here, you don't know what they are, but you can convince yourself that they really are uh, binary, either zero or one. That they've acted correctly. Exactly. So we had to develop a, a new zero-knowledge mechanism that's specifically designed for proving facts about secret shared data. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And this uh, the, the mechanism is actually... Um, something that's underlying many, many of the SNARK constructions. So this is something called a linear PCP. And I don't know if you covered linear PCPs in previous um, uh, sessions. No, really. Don't know. Oh, really? It's a really, really important term now uh, in the the concepts of SNARKs. This is how to understand, actually, it helps you understand how SNARKs work, and it helps you also understand how the Prius system works. It's kind of a very, very powerful unifying concept. Um, so what's a linear PCP? It's, by the way, due to uh, Yuval Ishai and, 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 his, and his collaborators. Um, very, very uh, powerful concept. So let's see if I can explain it in, in two sentences. Um, uh, see, that's a challenge for me. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a linear PCP? A linear PCP is basically uh, a funny type of proof. Yeah, so, so I can send you a proof. A proof is literally just a, a, a string of numbers, yeah? And the only thing you're allowed to do with that proof is you can specify a vector of the same length as the proof I send you. And what you get to see then is the inner product of those two vectors, the proof vector and the query vector. Yeah, and so the prover submits this 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 proof vector. The verifier submits a number of query vectors, and the pr- verifier then gets to see the inner product of the proof vector and the query vector. And then based on the responses, the verifier says, yes, I believe this proof, or no, I don't believe this proof. And the amazing thing is that um, the proofs don't need to be very large. They're linear in the size of the statement. And the verifier doesn't have to issue many queries. In fact, a constant number of queries is sufficient to verify a proof. What does the PCP stand for? Ah, is yeah, this good. proof? No, no, no. It's a probabilistically checkable proofs. 
because the queries are probabilistic. And th this is one of the beautiful applications of probability, of randomness, that you can verify very complicated statements very efficiently using randomness. Yeah. And what is the linear part of that? Yeah, the linear is the fact that the queries are linear queries, so that the response to the query is an inner product of the query vector and the proof vector. Yeah, so that's what that's why it stands for. That's what a linear PCP stands for. Would there for. be what's the opposite of a linear PCP, or not opposite, but what's a what's yeah, the variation? Yeah, so the other the other type of a PCP is what what I would call a point PCP. So a point PCP maybe is the more natural one, where I can provide a proof to you. And then you ask me, you're the verifier, so you ask me, open position number 34 in the proof. Yeah, point number 34. Show me what's in position 34. Show me what's in position 217. Yeah, and so uh, those are st traditional PCPs, which now I would call point PCPs because you're opening points. Um, so, for example, Starks are based on point are based on point PCPs. That was actually my question because, like, in I know that there's a part of Stark construction where you actually take a sampling. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So the whole that's right. So the whole FRI method that's all based on on looking at particular points inside of the proof. Uh, but if you step back, uh, it turns out a lot of these point PCPs are themselves based on linear PCPs. So yeah, so linear PCP is actually really quite a powerful concept. Cool. Um, Right. So in a PCP, the verifier is random. Is random. It's very important that the verifier be random. And let me give you a quick example of the power of randomness. So the typical example would be if I give you a polynomial of degree 10 in a black box, and the only thing you're allowed to do is evaluate the polynomial at points of your choice. Your job is tell me if this polynomial is identically zero or not. Yeah, that's the only thing you're trying to do. Uh, it turns out you can query the polynomial at um, many points, but if you do it deterministically, it's actually not so easy to, uh, to determine if it's a zero polynomial or not. You would need at least 10 queries. With randomness, it's quite easy. All you do is you choose one random point, and you ask whether the polynomial in the black box is, is whether the result is zero or not at the random point. Uh, because you know that a polynomial of degree 10 has at most 10 zeros, the probability that you hit one of those zeros is very small. It's 10 over the size of your field. I get it. And so if the answer is non-zero, you're guaranteed the polynomial is not the zero polynomial. Okay. If the answer is zero, you'll make a mistake with relatively small uh, probability. But it's interesting there, even in that example, because like there is a chance you do hit one of the 10. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, absolutely. This is why there's always a soundness error. But if we can drive, this is called a soundness error, where you make, you make the wrong determination. But if uh, the, but effectively, we can drive the soundness error to be as small as we want by making the field sufficiently big. Yeah. And so you'll see in a lot of these uh, constructions, there's always a trade-off between soundness and the size of the field. Cool. And actually, on the topic of randomness, we had Justin Drake from the Ethereum Foundation on the podcast like six months ago or so, and he actually talked about the importance of randomness and how this could be used. If any of our listeners are interested in this topic in particular, um, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Great. And I should say, by the way, that uh, even though now we've made the argument for, uh, for randomness, it turns out uh, in many situations we can actually remove the randomness using a heuristic called the Fiat-Jamir heuristic, which then lets you uh, basically generate the randomness using a hash function, which makes the protocol non-interactive. So cool. even though randomness is crucial, when you come to actually implement these things, often we can, we can uh, simulate the randomness using a, using a hash function. Nice. Do you have any other examples of projects uh, kind of in the zero-knowledge field that you're excited about right now or working on right now? 
Yeah, we have a couple uh, also in the blockchain space. But let me give you one that I'm that I'm kind of excited about that's uh, that's relevant to blockchains, although is is applicable more widely. So this is a system called uh, True2F. So here we were quite worried about supply chain attacks. Uh, so what happens? You, I'm sure you've heard of this uh, uh, board that ended up in uh, um, Apple and Amazon that turned out to have an extra rice grain chip, a rice grain processor on it that actually opened up a back door. Um, and so that's an example of a supply chain attack. Now, whether so, yeah, so you buy a machine. It comes to you from somewhere in the world, and it turns out it's got extra hardware that opens up actually a back door on your system. I, I guess the, the application here to blockchains is uh, you know if you buy any of these um, you know ledger or trezor, any of these any of these wallet hardware, uh, you know how do you know that the wallet hardware actually implements implements what it's supposed to implement? Maybe somebody put some other chip inside of the hardware device that uh, opens it up to a back door. This is like supply chain, like a, like a, a factory exactly. somewhere. It's not even the manufacturer themselves, but that someone malicious had access to their supply chain. Yeah, exactly. So you buy a part from someone. How do you know that that part doesn't have extra chips in it that uh, opens you up to a, opens a back door on your system? Uh, right. So we were particularly worried about this for for these uh, second factor authentication tokens. So, uh, you know, what, what are called U2F uh, tokens, universal second factor. And so traditionally, I'm sure you're familiar with U2F tokens. I'm sure a lot of your listeners, you use U2F yeah. tokens, uh, right? So these are like um, devices like the Google Titan chip and YubiKey and so on and so and so, so forth. I hope um, everyone uses a YubiKey. I, I'm not sure how many actually does, but yeah. I hope everybody. It's a wonderful, wonderful product. Yes. <laughs> By the way, Yubico are right down the street here and I, I, I work with them too. So it's, uh, it's, it's a really fun company. Um, so the the question is, what happens if um, uh, you know uh, one of these second factor comes to you and it's got a back, it's got something that's going to leak your credential to the outside world when you use it? And maybe I can step back a second and I can say that these U2F factors traditionally what they're designed to defend against is a situation where your laptop is infected with malware, but uh, you but the second factor device is secure, right? And then. The malware can't get the credential because the credential is stored in a second factor. Now we're saying, well, fine, this is a great security model, but maybe we can enhance it a bit. Why don't we, why don't we also consider the opposite situation where your second factor device actually is infected because of these supply chain attacks, but your laptop is secure? Yeah, so maybe the laptop can somehow verify that everything that the UTF device does is according to the protocol yeah, and so if it try if the UTF device tries to leak your credential somehow, it'll get blocked because the 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 the, the laptop is going to prevent that from happening. So we have these two security models, right? Either your laptop is infected and the UTF token is legit, or vice versa. Of course, if both your UTF token is compromised and your laptop is compromised, You're then screwed. we yeah we don't have a root <laughs> of trust. So then there's nothing much we can do for you. Gotcha. So True2F is a system that kind of enhances the traditional uh, U2F model. And so how does this connect to zero knowledge? Well, so the interesting thing is your laptop doesn't contain any secrets. What it does effectively is every time the U2F device produces a signature, say. So you're trying to log in. Uh, there's an ECDSA signature that's been generated by the, by the U2F token that's used for, for logging you in. Uh, every time it does that, it's going to provide a zero-knowledge proof that actually it, it produced that signature correctly. So it attests to the validity. Validity, exactly. Yeah. So the, the concern is specifically, 
an ECDSA signature in principle could leak your secret key. If you were malicious and you wanted, you had the secret key and you wanted to leak it to the outside world, you can produce an ECDSA, ECDSA signature that actually leaks the secret key, right? There's randomness in the ECDSA signature. That randomness could be used to leak information about your secret key. Yeah. So what the laptop will do then is uh, it will make sure that the, that the signature produced by the U2F token actually is not doing that. And how you do it, there's a whole protocol that goes into it. So it's contributing to the randomness that the U2F token is using. And then there's a zero knowledge proof to say, yes, I actually used the randomness you gave me. And therefore, the signature is properly random. It does not, it, it does not leak your secret key. Yeah. So I want to encourage people to just think about these supply chain attacks, you know, whether the event that we heard about last year happened or not, and you can link maybe to that event on the on the website, uh, whether that event happened or not, I think the message to remember is that event, that can happen. That type of supply chain attack is real. And even if it didn't happen next year, it'll happen, it, sorry, if it, even if it didn't happen last year, it will happen next year. So, so I'd like to encourage your listeners uh, to think about these supply chain attacks. And, and the, the point that I'd like to make is that uh, using, using zero-knowledge-like techniques, at least in certain cases, we can help to make sure that whatever hardware you're running, it can prove that it's doing things correctly. So even if the hardware itself is, has been compromised, it cannot, that compromise cannot be used to leak secrets from the hardware. Cool. So that's some of... The, the work that you've done, uh, I know there's like a whole host of other work, both from you and from your group of students and everyone. So we can't really cover everything. Um, but what I'm curious about as well is what are some of the, like you're talking about solved problems now. What are the unsolved problems? What, what are you looking forward to work on in the future? Oh my God, there are many. <laughs> what a wonderful question. Okay, so... Um, one of the problems that's been uh, driving me crazy over the last couple of years that I would be so happy if somebody solves, so please, I hope one of your listeners solves this, is this uh, long-standing problem of constructing what are called multilinear maps. So let me explain. Uh, so, so I imagine your listeners have heard of bilinear maps. Bilinear maps are the technology that's underlying BLS signatures. It's the technology that's underlying many of the recent SNARKs, growth 16, 16 and so on. Um, so bilinear maps are effectively maps that take two inputs and they're linear in each one of the inputs. It turns out we can do a lot more if we had what's called a cryptographic multilinear map. So a multilinear map is a map that takes multiple inputs and it's linear in each one of those, one of those inputs. So what are these things good for? Well, one of, the, one of the exciting applications for them is they very easily solve the long-standing problem called non-interactive key exchange, non-interactive group key exchange. Um, so what's the problem there? So imagine we have a million users. Every user posts their public key to some public uh, forum. Say they post on a Facebook or something. And now a subgroup of uh, a thousand of them want to create a group key so they can communicate securely with one another. Yeah, so this is what's called the group key exchange question. And we'd like to do that non-interactively. So every user, all they have to do is they have to download the 999 public keys from the, remain, from the other users, plus their own secret key. And that lets them generate a group key. And all the thousand members of the group do this, and they all end up with the same group key. An eavesdropper, all he sees is just a thousand public keys, 
And as a result, he can't figure out the group uh, overall, the, 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 uh, the group key. Wow. Um, yeah, so this has been an open problem for a long time. The, D the famous Diffie-Hellman protocol lets us solve it for two parties. There's a famous protocol due to Antoine Zhu that lets us solve it for three parties. And beyond three, basically, we have theoretical solutions, but no practical solutions. Yeah? And so multi-journey maps would give you a complete solution to this problem right away. And I'll just say, this is, this is um, quite relevant today because there's now a whole working group called uh, the Messaging Layer Security Working Group, MLS, trying to standardize group key exchange. And this is all relevant because of various chat applications. They all support group key exchange. Um, you know, so Signal and Messenger and so on and so forth, they all support uh, uh, group chats. And so a group key exchange will let them very easily build group chats that are that are uh, secure. Today, they have to go through a much more complicated protocol to generate a group key, so we can do it. And they will do it. And actually, the MLS uh, uh, working group is standardizing systems for group key exchange based on two-party key exchange. So they can generalize from two-party to n-party uh, these multi-learning maps will give a very clean solution. So this is actually a good time to solve this problem. And by the way, I have to say, there are other killer applications for multi-learning maps. One of them is what's called code obfuscation. Um, and uh, maybe we can talk about code obfuscation when we talk about future things that crypto can do for us. But we already know that multi-learning maps imply code obfuscation. And if we had good multi-learning maps, we could actually have decent code obfuscation schemes. So that's a that's a exciting area. So hopefully one of your listeners is interested and can actually come up with a great solution. I would be so happy. Um, maybe I can mention one more problem, please. Yeah. So so this is also a problem that's been uh, on my mind for quite some time, and I would like love to see a clean solution. So this is actually a really basic problem um, that, in some sense, the crypto community has been failing the blockchain community. Yeah. So the problem is. Um, what I would call short post-quantum signatures. Yes? So we have pre-quantum, we have good signatures, Schnorr signatures, BLS signatures, and such, that have a short public key, 32 bytes, and a short uh, signature, um, 48 or 64 bytes, and so on. What we'd like to have is a, uh, a signature scheme that remains secure even if the adversary has a quantum computer, a post-quantum signature. Well, today, if you look at the submissions to the NIST competition, uh, these submissions basically either have much, much longer signatures or much longer signatures plus public key links. We'd like both the public key and the signature to be short. Yeah, and of course, we'd like it all to be based on assumptions that we all know, trust and believe, and uh, we, we have faith that they really are post-quantum secure. So this is a problem that I've been kind of bothered with uh, for a long time. Can we actually, can we construct short, uh, these short post-quantum signatures? I was hoping, we've been working quite hard on trying to get them from... Um, uh, the, the, these schemes called isogeny-based crypto systems. So isogenies are kind of an interesting way to build post-quantum security. Um, but somehow everything we try, we're also able to break. So we're not quite there yet. Um, but, it, you know, it's again, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, question and hope some of your listeners will be interested and we'll, we'll try to work on it. If you have ideas, you know, please send them. Please send them. We'd, we'd love to collaborate. The whole area of uh, isogenies is something I want to do an episode on in the future because there's so much talk. Like VDFs have been a hot topic for a while as well, and there's these new isogenies VDFs, and yeah, there's a bunch of interesting stuff there, and it's a field that I know very little about. Yeah, the nice thing about isogenies is that if you understand how Diffie-Hellman works, 
you can actually, at a high level, you can understand how isogenies work quite quite easily. Yeah. So All I would right. love to launch into my into my <laughs> quick description of how isogenies work, but I'm not sure given the time we'd have to do. We'd be here until the evening if we do if we do that. <laughs> Maybe that will require a new episode. Uh-huh. I want to ask you about this post quantum stuff. So this has been brought up a number of times. Is this something that you think the cryptography community is very focused on right now? Are they focused enough on the post-quantum idea? The fact that quantum computers are going to come along and potentially break a lot of the standard cryptography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the way I'd answer this question is, uh, the first question to ask is, why would anyone develop quantum computers? Right, so so the answer people give is, oh yeah, we can break RSA, we can break discrete log, we can break Diffie-Hellman. That's not a reason to develop quantum computers. Right. The reason that's not the reason to develop quantum computers is we have good post-quantum crypto today. Right. We have lattice-based crypto. We have isogeny-based crypto. It's all getting standardized by NIST. So by the time somebody actually builds a large enough quantum computer to break these schemes, we will have moved on. We have a ways to recover. And so that's not a reason to build a quantum computer. If there's no business reason to build a quantum computer, they will never be built. Mm. That's just a fact of nature law of nature. So, so the first question you have to ask is, why is it that, why would anyone build a quantum computer? There have to be other applications outside of breaking crypto systems. And the answer is that these quantum computers are actually, well, not surprisingly, they're good at simulating physics. And the place where we need to simulate physics is when we do computational chemistry. So when you do drug design, yeah, when you uh, do, I guess people always give these, uh, these uh, fertilizers, uh, where you try to actually design molecules with certain properties. Um, today, if I give you a complicated molecule and I ask you, tell me what its ground states are. Analytically, it's actually quite difficult to do. And often people have to go and build a molecule and then do crystallography to actually figure out what, what its structure is. It'd be much nicer if we can do it all on a computer. And you um, need quantum computers, post-quantum computers in order to do that. Do you call them post-quantum? No, you call them quantum computers. There's yeah. post-quantum yeah. cryptography <laughs> and there's quantum computers. So you would need quantum computers in order to do that. So ma- so many of the, this is called, uh, uh, the, the, the term for this is called a NISC. This is uh, what's called a noisy intermediate scale quantum computer, uh, NISC. And the killer application for NISCs is basically computational chemistry, right? So that's kind of the short-term application that uh, we're, we're, we're working f- towards. Now, these NISC applications, they typically require only a couple of hundreds of, hundreds of qubits or maybe thousands of qubits. To break crypto, we need tens of millions of qubits. Yeah, so we're very, very, very far away from that. And by the way, it's not just the number of qubits that we need, it's also the decoherence time. Yeah, so today, if you look at the quantum computers that are being built today, you know, by IBM, by Google, by Rigetti, um, those quantum computers today can only, basically, they can maintain coherence so that for a relatively short amount of time. So you can do very, very uh, shallow computations, right? So you can you kind of uh, have to do your computation within a, a thousand steps, and then the computation dies. There's too much noise. So you can do a, you can evaluate a wide circuit, but it has to be very shallow so that it's fast to evaluate. Whereas breaking crypto, well, those algorithms are necessarily sequential, so they take quite a while to run. So it'll take the algorithm, the computer, actually a couple of hours to run uh, to break the crypto. So we're not there, we're far from there, A, in the number of qubits, and B, the decoherence time. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, there are improvements, right? So the number of qubits keeps, in- keeps growing, the decoherence time uh, keeps increasing. And so let's just pretend, let's assume uh, things will progress at the, f- at the rate of Moore's Law. 
it's not, that's a big assumption. We don't know if that's true or not, but let's assume things progress at the rate of Moore's law. Well, you, we need to get to around 100 million qubits to run these, these uh, uh, factoring and discrete log algorithms. So if you compute log of 100 million based on 1.8 months, right? Moore's law says doubling every 1.8 months, mm-hmm. you get about 30 years. Yeah, so we're 30 years away. If Moore's law applies, we're about 30 years away from having a computer that's large enough to actually break a crypto system. Yeah, so that's kind of the time horizon. It sounds like it's worth keeping an eye on, but it's still a ways off. So a lot of this pre-quantum cryptography is still very, very relevant. Yes. So in fact, a lot of pre-quantum cryptography is going to be very relevant for a long time to come. We're probably going to have good indication when it's when we need to move away from um, from the pre-quantum crypto. At the same time, I have to say the crypto community is very hard at work on building post-quantum systems so that we are ready. This is what mm-hmm. academia is supposed to be working on. Right? We're not supposed to be working on things that are needed next year. We need to be working on things that are also needed 50 to 100 years from now. Totally. So uh, there's a massive effort in building uh, post-quantum crypto systems. We are pretty much, we're very well, well prepared for it. Um, uh, so yeah, so blockchains are safe, no worries. Effectively, for now, it's okay to use pre-quantum crypto. Very cool. In the same line, I'm really curious to hear your vision of the future of crypto. We already touched a little bit on various topics here, but you know, where do you see things going Given your decades of experience, you know, is, are things moving faster, slower? Is it more exciting or less exciting? Or what's going on? What will happen in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I have to say, there's never, never a dull moment in crypto. It's like over every couple of years, it seems like all the important questions have been solved. And then like a whole new area gets invented. So there's never, ever a dull moment. Um, maybe if I if I have to answer if I need to answer your question, I would kind of answer it like like this. I would say, um, you know, over the the past decade, we've kind of seen tools that were considered theoretical tools like zero knowledge and MPC. We've seen them kind of move into practice and actually get deployed in real systems, which is so much fun to see. You know, for a cryptographer, this is amazing, amazing to see this beautiful ideas that have been developing for 30 years are now actually being put to use. So I'm thrilled that this is this is happening. So you ask about the future. Well, I'm hoping that the same thing will happen in the future. Yeah, so there is this very theoretical concept in cryptography today, which we touched upon, called obfuscation. Uh, so maybe for your listeners who are not familiar with obfuscation, I can say what obfuscation is. It's a crypto mechanism that allows you to hide secret keys in code. Yeah, so I can put a secret key, like a secret decryption key, a secret signing key in code. I can literally give you the software. Yeah, you can run the code and do whatever you want with it. Yeah, you can run the software, do whatever you want with that software, but you will not be able to get the key out other than the way that the software was intended to run. Yeah, so that's what obfuscation lets you do. So why is this relevant to blockchains? Well, you can imagine um, a dApp where I would actually... Build build a program that signs a certain message only if certain conditions exist. Yeah, and then today, if I upload that program to the cloud to the blockchain, everybody can look at the program and say, "Oh, that's the signing key." I'm just going to extract the signing key and sign things when they're not supposed to be signed. Mm-hmm. But if the program is obfuscated, really the only thing you can do is just run the program, and it will only sign things for you if the appropriate preconditions are satisfied. 
Yeah. Today, if we wanted to do that, we effectively have to use secure hardware like SGX or or, or other or other uh, hardware enclaves. Uh, but obfuscation basically lets you do things that today requires secure enclaves just using crypto. So what's the problem? The problem is even though obfuscation, uh, software obfuscation. Uh, solves almost all open problems in crypto. It's like, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's literally, um, if we had practical obfuscation, it's like almost everything you want can be done. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, but it's not there yet. It's far, we know, so that's right. So today we have candidate obfuscation schemes. They're polynomial time, but this is a terrible, it's a terrible polynomial. So they're so inefficient that we can't really build real anything that's even resembling something that's uh, that's that's real world yet. So my hope is just like you know, 10, 20 years ago, everybody was saying, "Oh, zero knowledge NPC, it's all theoretical, and it'll get deployed. Too slow, too inefficient." Uh, one could hope that over the next decade or two or three or four, you know, obfuscation will get better and better and better until the point where it can actually be deployed. And again, the amazing thing is um, everything that we can do, or you know. Simple things that we need uh, hardware enclaves for today can then be done without relying on a hardware enclave, but instead relying on crypto. Wow! Right. So we remo- remove single points of trust, mm. and you know, instead of security, it's always better to base it on math than to base it on uh, other assumptions. Uh, so yeah, so that's kind of I'm hoping that's one area where uh, you know things will will move in the future. And then, um, you know, in the world of post-quantum security, there's still a lot to do. Yeah, like I said, short signatures is an issue, uh, you know, better snarks for the post-quantum world. Obviously, snarks are, are, are post-quantum, but, you know, like I said, there are many different directions to building snarks, and not all of them are post-quantum. And then even in the world of, of quantum, uh, there's actually a sequence of papers that we wrote a while ago on something we would call post-post-quantum. Whoa. So, so post post quantum, <laughs> bit of a funny name, but um, what it is 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 the settings where not only is the ad not only does the adversary have a quantum computer, but actually the end users also have a quantum computer. So imagine my laptop is a quantum machine. We are very far away from that, mm-hmm. right? Today, quantum computers are huge, right? They have these fridges that have to cool things down to absolute zero. Long ways off until this is actually running on my laptop. But, you know, maybe our great, great, great grandkids will have quantum computers on their laptops. And then this opens up like a whole new directions for attacks. Because today, if I want to attack a a signature scheme, for example, the security for a signature scheme says, I get to submit a message of my choice and you give me a signature on that message. And we'd like to make sure that the signature is secure under those settings. But if my laptop is quantum, uh, I get to submit like a if you like, like uh, a bag of, of messages and you give me back a bag of signatures. It gives the attacker more power. And as a result, the question is, how do we design crypto systems that are secure when the attacker can interact with the participants over a quantum channel? Yeah, so even that are things that, uh, that we're considering. And like I said, there's a lot more to do, to do in that space as well. So the quantum world is like, you know, it's gonna keep us busy for many, many years to come. Cool. All right, to wrap it up, I want to ask a short question that's a little bit uh, more on on your personal feeling because you you invented or were part in inventing BLS signatures. And they're now being widely adopted by like this relatively large blockchain community. How does it feel to to like 
invent something and, and create something like BLS signatures and see such wide adoption of it. So uh, honestly, I'm happy whenever new crypto mechanisms get deployed. So for me, it's wonderful to see pairings and BLS signatures being used. Uh, yeah, I love it. Um, I'm actually quite happy that pairings are used in other places too. Snarks, many of the snarks use use pairings. Uh, but uh, for sure, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled that BLS is 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 useful. Right. So so BLS signatures are basically based on bilinear maps. So I'm thrilled to see more of more applications of bilinear maps being used in the real world. I guess. Uh, the primary reason why BLS signatures are kind of a good match for the world of blockchains is that it's very easy to aggregate BLS signatures once they're once they're produced. Yeah, so you can have a million people generate signatures on messages of their choice, and then anyone can come in, take those million signatures, and whoosh, con- compress them into a single signature. Yeah, that uh, can then be verified. So there's one single signature then basically provides a proof that all million signatures were were valid. And it's really simple to aggregate. All you do is you just multiply all the signatures together. That's all it is. Hmm. Yeah. And so if you have a bunch of signatures in a block, all the signatures in a block can com- be compressed into a single signature. Uh, in the proof of, uh, of um, stake systems, you have to have a lot of the stakers sign, sign the fact that they allow a certain state transition. You can take all those signatures and compress them into a single signature. So the data that's actually stored on the blockchain is much, much, much smaller than it is than it was before. And yet it still represents all of those signatures somehow. Exactly. So that one aggregate signature convinces the verifier that all the messages that were, uh, that were, that were signed were actually properly signed. So, uh, you know, I like everything in cryptography. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a tricky, tricky situation, yeah, in that uh, uh, it's, it's always more complicated than it seems. Yeah, if literally you implement, if you read kind of the basic uh, schemes for how to do aggregation, you, you read that, oh, you just take all the signatures and you multiply them together, and that's it. That's your, that's your aggregate signature. Well, it turns out it's not that simple. Yeah, so that is actually what you do. You just multiply them all together. But it turns out if you just do it naively, you open yourself up to what's called a rogue public key attack. Yeah, so that's a fascinating attack in its own right, where where um, what I can do is I can look at your public key and I can cook up a public key myself that I wouldn't know what the private key for that public key is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I cook up a new public key. And now, all of a sudden, what I can do is I can create an aggregate signature on a message of my choice that would look like both you and I signed that message. Yeah, that's the rogue public key attack, where, in effect, I can create create an aggregate that commits you to a message that you never signed. Mm. Yeah? And so, well, so you have to be careful about rogue public keys. And in fact, most of the work on BLS Signature deals with how to defend against rogue public keys. And we have multiple methods uh, to defend against that. And all is actually being worked into this uh, standard that, uh, that's now emerging to provide uh, secure signature aggregation. So the only thing I'm saying, the only reason I'm bringing that up is I want your listeners to understand that aggregation is really simple. It can be done securely. Uh, however, you know, don't don't do this at home, right? <laughs> um, you know, if you're going to do a signature aggregation, follow the standards because if you just do it in the simple, naive way, 
it'll not be secure. And it's it's ignoring all of those attack exactly. cases. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That you have thought of in the construction of this. Ex- yes, exactly, exactly. Mm. So so it's kind of uh, it's a useful mechanism, yeah, that will compress the amount of storage you need to store large numbers of signatures, but you should be using standards. Uh, so that's one one area where people sometimes um, uh, can make mistakes. Another area is uh, in the, again, kind of looking at recent work on BLS, is this question of if you want to sign a message in BLS, the first thing you have to do is you have to map the message to a point on an elliptic curve. And the question is, how do you map to a point on an elliptic curve? Um, it turns out there's kind of a naive method. It's called um, basically guess and try. See, you know, you hash to a random place and you hope that it's on the elliptic curve. Uh, but it turns out we can do things more efficiently. And so actually we have some recent recent work. Uh, this is with Riyadh, my student Riyadh Wabi, uh, where uh, we give a very efficient way to map onto these pairing-friendly uh, elliptic curves. So again, this is all getting in- wrapped up in this in the standard. So if you're going to use BLS signatures, it's probably at this point a good idea to follow the the standard that's forming. Don't kind of implement your own library and your own uh, roll out your your own implementation. Uh, follow the techniques in the standard. Follow the API that's the stand that the standard provides, um, and that's probably the best way best way to do it. And I have to say, the cool thing is that it's really getting quite a bit of traction. So Definity, Chia, East 2.0, Ethereum 2.0, all those projects are actually using BLS. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm like you said, Frederick, I'm, I'm thrilled that this is actually seeing real use. And when? I'm, I hope to see much more crypto get deployed in these projects. When was that actually developed? When is the BLS, like when, when was that first proposed? Oh, it's quite old. It uh, dates back to, to, I believe, 2001. Yeah. And so it took, what was it like? 10 years, 12 years before you got to see it implemented in blockchain, or was it already? Uh, well, we implemented it uh, fairly quickly just to experiment with the scheme. Uh, but the, the I guess, when did, when did blockchain projects kind of start, uh, start using it? I think, well, hmm, that's a good question. I'm actually not sure. Hmm. I'm I, just trying to picture I, like I what the I think the, uh, the first one is. I remember publicly writing, or like maybe it's just the first one that was a large project writing about it was Definity. Yeah, I think Dom was actually uh, kind of needed it for their uh, threshold relay. So what he needed was a signature scheme that's easily supported threshold signatures and easily supported threshold key generation. Yeah. Uh, and so that that was a good match in that it easily supports both those mm-hmm. operations. Cool. So listen, this has been such a fantastic conversation, wide ranging. I feel like there's so many pieces of this last two hours that we could go very deep on and do full episodes. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and for being on our hundredth episode. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for actually running this podcast. (laughs) It's a wonderful service to the community. Thank you very much. Um, I actually, I had a piece uh, in the education section that I wanted to ask on what role you think podcasts like these and others play but i'll i'll leave that for a future conversation as well so thank you thank you very much uh it's been a pleasure yep thank you guys and to our listeners thanks for listening thanks for listening 